And Father, now as we open your word uh, and spend time there, um, speak uh, for your servants are listening um, and show us uh, the wonderful truth that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Last week, we began a new sermon series, a new sermon series on the topic of the church. A lot of talk about the church today, uh, which seems appropriate. Uh, And our sermon series is entitled, uh, The Broken and Beautiful Church. We're looking at Paul's first letter uh, to the church at Corinth. And and what we saw last week um, in, in Paul's introduction to this letter was a church that's dealing with all sorts of issues, all sorts of issues that frankly, we as 21st century um, Christians can, can even relate to. Um, they, this church, was an absolute mess. Um, and yet, what we saw from his introduction is that he does not come in guns blazing. He does not lambast these people, at least not initially. Um, instead, he, he starts off the letter by referring to the church at Corinth as saints, Despite their behavior, Paul argues that these people are saints. Not because of who they are, first and foremost, their good behavior, because, frankly, they don't have that much, um, but rather because of who Christ is. God has called them. He has set them apart and declared them righteous based on what Jesus accomplished on their behalf, and therefore they are saints. And it is from this vantage point that they can begin to work through their various issues. But not only that, we read that God is in their midst. He's in their midst um, through his spirit. And so though this place has its issues, Paul is hopeful. He is hopeful for the church, which means that we should be as well, because God is at work in it. This morning, we're going to begin to kind of go in and talk about one of the challenges that Paul's going to address, the challenges that this church is facing. And so let's take a look at our passage for this morning. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. And you can find this on page 10 of your worship folder. Hear the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether or not I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today um, might feel like somewhat of a somber day nationally, um, because it's been one year since the events that took place in Charlottesville, Virginia. A, A rally that was entitled 
unite the right, uh, not only left one person dead, but, but put front and center into the American consciousness just how divided we are as a nation. That we are living in what one author refers to as a, a fractured republic. That we are a fragmented society, increasingly so. Now, it shouldn't go without saying that, that the ideology of white nationalism attached to this rally is completely and totally antithetical to Christianity, and it should be denounced at every turn in the most emphatic ways possible. Just saying. But what we should find interesting about this, this, this notion of, okay, unite the right, is that in that is the word unite. Unite! Which, like, we're like, yeah, unity, that's a good thing, right? Unity's great. And yet, this unity was creating division. But this is what happens in a fragmented society. You know, we break off into our little groups, our smaller groups, our niche groups, based on all sorts of markers, and we find unity there. But in doing so, we divide ourselves from the larger group. It was Jesus, not Abraham Lincoln, who was the first to say, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so that's true not simply for a nation, it's true for the church as well. Because the church, as we just read, has the potential to sort of divide itself up to. The title of today's sermon is Divided We Fall. And what we're going to explore today is the topic of division. Division in the church, uh, and Paul's plea for unity, a real unity within the church. And so those are actually going to serve as our, our two points for the day, okay? First of all, what divides us as believers? And then second, what unites us as believers? What divides us? What unites us? First, what divides believers? Take a look, if you would, at verses 11 and 12. Paul writes this, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. So here's the deal. So Paul has stayed in touch. We, you know, Paul founded this church, he's left, but he stayed in touch with people. Somebody named Chloe, we don't know who Chloe is, but, but they're talking. They're communicating, and she's telling Paul, hey, here's what's happening here. What's happening is there are all sorts of factions within the church, okay? Factions that are being attached to, to various individuals. you got Paul, you got Apollos, you got Cephas, Cephas also known as, as Peter. And so these figures in the church are essentially serving as rallying points around these various factions, okay? As far as, as why they are attaching special significance to these particular individuals, we don't know that with absolute certainty. But here's what we do know. We know a lot from having read 1 Corinthians. We also know a lot about the individuals here and sort of their dynamic within the life of this church and, and, and more broadly. And so we, there's some dots that I think we can feel comfortable connecting on this. 
which may have given us some insight into what what exactly is dividing this place. Because they are the issues that continue to divide the church even now. And so this, in no ways, is intended to be an exhaustive list. Let's look at a few of the suspects. The first rallying point that we see here is Paul talking about himself, okay? I follow Paul. Why might there have been a group of people saying, I follow Paul? Well, as we mentioned last week, I mean, Paul was the guy who founded this place. For for some individuals, Paul very well may have played a significant role in their coming to faith in Jesus. And so certainly there would have been a sentimental attachment to Paul. I mean, think about the people who've, who've influenced you as it relates to the Christian faith. I mean, there, there's, there's an appreciation for them. There's a value for them. There's a relationship that you can look at and go, yes, that, that, that's important to me. But with Paul no longer there, naturally there would have been people who yeah, kind of miss him. Man, start thinking about to the, the good old days again, you know, the way things used to be, you know, the, the glory days. You know, back when the, you know, the church was just getting off the ground and, and it was all new and exciting. Back before, you know, all this drama entered into the picture. You know, back, remember back when Paul was here? Back when Paul was here, things were awesome. But he's gone now. It's why Paul makes the point about being glad that, that he didn't baptize that many people. Why? Because he's not interested in people rallying around him. And yet, romanticizing the past, it's a fairly common practice in the life of the church. I mean, our thoughts and conversation can very easily sort of, you know, just kind of tend that way. Talk about the way things used to be. The way things used to be. Now, again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with talking about the way things used to be. I mean, again, the reason that we have the potential to get a attached to different people or places or programs or the way you do church, all that kind of stuff, the reason we get attached to that is because at some point along the way, God very well may have used that in our lives, and we've benefited from it. It's been helpful. It pointed us to Jesus. It strengthened us. It encouraged us. And so, I mean, of course change can be difficult, right? Right? Change can be difficult. We, we, we grieve when something that, that matters to us goes away. It's understandable. But here's the thing. There's a way for our sentimental attachment to the past, to particular people, places, programs, whatever, to actually become a source of division in the life of the church. Because a sentimental attachment to what has been can keep us from adjusting to the fact that, unlike God, life is changing and moving and it's different. And in the church, I mean, if you've been in the church very long and you've, you know, the the topic of change comes up, what is sort of the natural response that's so often presented? But it's like the trump card, right? What, what is it? Well, we've never done it 
that way. We never did it that way. We, we don't do that. That's not the way we've done it. That's the impulse response. Now, to be clear, there may be great reasons for doing things the way they've been done in the past. Okay? Don't hear me advocating for some, you know, out with the old and with the new perspective, indifferent, I mean, to those who have gone before us and offer wisdom. I'm, I'm a Presbyterian, for crying out loud. We like the past. We're, you know, we love it. Um, but it's also possible to become enslaved to the past, so much so that we aren't really functioning very well in the, in the present. And we should recognize that there is a great difference between valuing tradition versus traditionalism. Okay? Tradition. We talked about it. The Apostles' Creed, this is the faith that's been passed down from the saints, as Jude says. Okay? We value that. We've benefited from that. But traditionalism all of a sudden makes us slaves to the past. As if we think about the good old days and we have to replicate what's been done for the last 2,000 years. It can be a source of division. Paul, when he says, you know, I follow Paul, it's quite possible. That's what they're doing. They're romanticizing Paul, romanticizing the past. But Paul's not the only one. Paul also mentions a couple other ones. So others are saying, I follow Apollos. Apollos, good Greek name right there. Who was Apollos? Back in the book of Acts, it it describes Apollos as as a person who was gifted in knowledge and his preaching of the scriptures, which is something that, as we'll find out, these Greeks were kind of all about. Over the next few chapters, Paul's going to discuss how these, these sophisticated Corinthians, with all their learning, all their knowledge, placed a great deal of weight on the oratory skills of the teacher. Okay, In order to be a good preacher, teacher, you've got to speak with diction. Enunciate. You must make a convincing, logical argument. Okay? Use really, really big words. No awkward pauses, no ums. Okay? And given sort of the Greek valuing of, of presentation, it's quite possible that the, that the church was developing into factions around who they thought was the best teacher. Who's the best teacher? I follow Apollos, the most charismatic, the most insightful, the most intelligent. Apollos probably would have fit this description. Now, you might be thinking, okay, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Shouldn't we be grateful for gifted teachers who can use complete sentences? I mean, that that seems like a win, you know? I mean, they communicate well. That's, That's a win. That's a good thing. Somebody who knows their stuff. Better than somebody who kind of doesn't. Um, should we be grateful for the teachers that God has put into our midst? Absolutely. There are wonderful teachers out there. And my hope is that you value that. Like, you value hearing God's Word explained well for the sake of your own soul, for the sake of your relationship to Christ. And yet, once again, there's the potential for a good gift from God to become a source of division as we begin to focus on the gifts of certain individuals. How so? A couple years back, um, before we had our first child, when we could do things like this, um, Meredith and I took a trip to New York City 
for our anniversary. And, um, of course, I mean, you're going to the Big Apple, right? So you've got your, there's a lot of stuff to do in New York City. So you've got your list. Here's what we want to do. Here's what we want to see. Here's what we want to accomplish while we are there. Now, as a young Presbyterian pastor, one of the things on my list was that I wanted to go and attend Redeemer Presbyterian Church, okay? I mean, we've already talked about Tim Keller once in this service. Who knows how many more times we'll talk about him today? He's a big deal. Tim Keller, the planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. Thousands of people go there. He's a church planning guru. He's a public intellectual. He's a pastor, super gifted. And, And so I wanted to go hear Tim Keller at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Well, here's the, here's the thing with Redeemer Presbyterian Church. There's lots of people there, and they have multiple campuses, and their services meet at various points, and they have lots of pastors. So the way they do things there is they have multiple pastors teaching at multiple places, and they're all teaching the same text, but not the same guy's going to teach it. And so it's, it's sort of a crapshoot wondering if you're going to actually hear Keller. Because you might get to go hear the, the B team, you know? Um, <laughs> these other guys who, you know, just, they're not Tim Keller. And so, you know, I, I rolled the dice. I picked my servant, servant, service, the one I was going to attend. And, and, and lo and behold, Tim Keller was not the preacher there. And I'll be honest. I had to resist the temptation to feel cheated, right? You know, I don't get to New, I don't get to New York City. That was a one-time thing. This is my chance. I want to hear Tim Keller too. It's quite possible that our desire to sit under good preaching and teaching could actually subtly turn into kind of hero worship where we're more attracted to a leader's particular style or way of delivery, whatever, the illustrations they use, their reputation, whatever, than what the leader should be pointing us to. I don't think it's a stretch to say that, that there's a temptation within many of us especially in a place like Memphis, okay? Memphis, large concentration of people, many people who, who are talented, okay? Kind of becomes a hub of a lot of people who, who are gifted, and God's the one who's given those gifts. To, we, we see that, and, and we go, you know what? I want to attach myself to the next big thing, or, or, or I want to become the next big thing. We want to be associated with movements and places and people where the action's happening, right? And that could be because we want to see God at work in the community. It could also be because it makes us feel really important to be connected to the, to the action, right? It could be both because we're messy people. But we can get so caught up in that kind of stuff that it can essentially overshadow or distract us from Jesus. <laughs> A concern with presentation, with charisma, with eloquence, all of that can potentially even make us dissatisfied with what we have. Man, if we just had that. And then all of a sudden it becomes kind of a competition between churches. 
It becomes a competition even between people in a particular congregation. We ought to do this. Well, I don't like that so much. So then it becomes about all of our, our preferences. Begin to debate. Who's got the better product? Which is a subjective deal, right? When I first started in ministry, I had a mentor type. Pretty cynical guy, to be honest. Okay, so take this with a grain of salt. But there's a point to be made here. He told me, remember, most of the compliments that you're going to get in ministry are at someone else's expense. What do you mean by that? They're basically, here's what he's saying. They're comparing you to somebody else, either they like you better than them or not. Now, I mean, I don't want to be that cynical, right? I mean, that, that's, that's pretty tough stuff. But, but there may be, while there's some hyperbole in that, I mean, there may be some truth to it as well especially in kind of a consumer church culture, which is what the American church is, frankly. And that, we're, we are impacted by that because there's constant competition, okay? I'm going to show up. I'm going to treat church essentially like fast food line. I, li- I like their chicken sandwich and their offerings, but I'm not so sure. Today I'm not feeling it, so I'm going to drive over here and get what they're offering. That's That's... That's a great potential for division. Hero worship, that type, that type of I want to identify myself with certain personalities, certain movements, certain whatever, has the great potential to be a divisive thing. To take a good thing, like Apollos being able to preach well, and all of a sudden make it about Apollos. Paul also mentions a third person. A guy named Cephas, um, which is the Aramaic name for, for Peter. Okay, now, you, you're familiar with the New Testament. I mean, you know Peter. Peter uh, had a, you know, some mishaps along the way, denied Jesus. He also was the first to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Um, and so he's had his ups and downs. He kind of is a foil, does a lot of, says and does a lot of stupid things along the way. But, but as you read on, Peter is also known for something else in the life of the church. Um, the first big controversy, theological controversy in the life of the church, um, was this. Do Gentiles, do non-Jewish people need to become Jewish before they become Christians? It's a major issue. Do non-Jewish people need to become Jewish before they become Christians? And Paul, who we're reading right now, and Peter, at least for a while there, did not see eye to eye on this. And ultimately, Paul won the day. And they won the day, if you want to go read about this, Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, they, they discuss these matters and show from the Bible that Peter is theologically off base and he is wrong. Okay? It's a major issue. But there may have been those who kind of still thought, you know what, Uh, Peter's still maybe kind of on to something. We still think like Cephas. I follow Cephas. And so the issue here has the potential to be theological. Theological debates, which is another thing that obviously can divide the church, right? Christians have shown their ability to argue about anything. (laughs) About anything. Um, Now, Some of these debates need to happen, right? 
like the one with Peter. That needed to happen because it involved the difference between truth and falsehood, something that's biblical versus unbiblical. An essential part of the faith was being compromised here. Here's the thing, though. Not every debate is the difference between truth and heresy. Some issues that Christians debate about are nothing more than a matter of preference, preferences that can somehow be baptized into being treated as if they're first-order issues, like, for instance, what instruments you use in worship or how you dress in a worship service. That is nothing more than preference. Other issues matter, but they're not like the first-order issues, okay? Not, Not every issue is of equal importance, Not every issue is equally clear. Take, for instance, the issue of baptism. We joke about my Freudian slip up here earlier, okay? Do we do baptism, believer's baptism or covenant baptism? Not every person who reads the Bible, believes it, wants to sit under its authority so that they may love and serve Jesus, agrees on the mode or the method of baptism to whom it should be administered. Which mode should they be administering it? Not every Christian agrees on that. And so, what happened? What's happened is the church has gotten divided up. Divided up into various aspects, uh, various places, congregations, denominations that hold to particular convictions, okay? And so many would argue that the biggest source of division in the life of the church are denominations. Begs the question, are denominations bad? Some would say yes. Some have even attempted to sort of transcend the denominational divide by, by being, what, non-denominational, right? We're, we're non-denominational. I'm sympathetic. But the reality is that, that those who, don't, who subscribe to that, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Because, I mean, many non-denominational churches actually function like a denomination. Um, But more importantly, getting rid of the denomination thing doesn't get around the fact that every church has to make decisions on what they believe about stuff like baptism or church government or the Lord's Supper or worship. Those decisions still have to be made, even if you call yourself a non-denominational place. So here's the reality. On some level, the church will have to divide. It just will. Not every believer in Memphis can, can be part of one church under one roof serving as one entity. The church is going to have to divide up. This church is going to have We divide up into community groups because in order to know people better, we need to grow a little smaller. Okay, So division on some level is, is understandable and even necessary. The question is, Do we have a a divisive spirit about us? And so while denominations, they can be divisive, they can also actually be kind of helpful. I mean, they can allow for cooperation with other Christians, fellowship with other Christians, accountability with other Christians. They could also be helpful in informing people about what other Christians believe because, frankly, I'm not trying to be too harsh here, but there are places that you're less likely to hear the gospel of grace. The gospel may not be preached there. So knowing that, that could be helpful. But 
The issue is when we become so attached to our denomination, to our faction, to our clique, rather than the gospel, we have lost our way. It's really possible. I mean, for Presbyterians, okay, we're Presbyterians here. Um, We're not in the name, but we don't feel the need to lead with that, but we're not ashamed of it either. I mean, we're part of the the Reformed tradition, okay? What that means is that we we embrace the movement that took place back in the 16th century where uh, guys started reading the Bible and getting back to the Bible um, and believing what we believe the Bible says as it relates to how are we right with God and what that, that means. We're part of the, quote, reformed tradition. I want you to think about that for a moment. We're part of the reformed tradition. To reform something means you're part of it. You can't reform something you're not part of, okay? When we confessed the Apostles' Creed earlier, we're saying that we believe in the Catholic Church. Now, I grew up, you know, kind of going, I don't know what that, we, we, didn't, we didn't do creeds. And so Catholic was like, uh, I'm not sure what, what that means. Is that talking about Roman Catholic? And we're not saying that it means that. We're saying Catholic in the sense of the universal church. The church is bigger than GCC. It's bigger than the PCA. It's, it's bigger than the limits that we often put on it. But to be reformed, I'm quoting a guy named James K.A. Smith here, to be reformed is to be Catholic because you can't reform something you're not part of. We're part of the church, the broader church, the larger church, and that has to be first and foremost in our thinking, which means that we should, we should probably wear our labels lightly because what truly matters is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's where we find our identity. And so to do so, to really focus in on this congregation, this denomination, whatever, and lose that broader sense has the potential to be divisive. What's interesting, and this is the last sort of division that we see here. What's interesting is that Paul refers to one last faction, right? There's a group that says, I claim to be doing this. I am just going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Christ. It's a beautiful thing, right? We should be all about following Christ, yes. But what's strange is that Paul criticizes them for it. Why? Why would he do that? Because what they're taking this to mean is essentially, I'm going to separate myself from the church. All you crazy people can just have it. You just go and bicker and, and do this kind of stuff. I'm going to go follow Jesus and basically do my own thing and follow because I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do it the way it's supposed to be. I don't know about you. I'm just following Jesus um, as sort of a super spiritual way of going about church life or whatever. Ever heard statements like this before? Ever made statements like this before? Again, I'm sympathetic most likely what this approach is is sort of a, a spirituality divorced from the church, divorced from even Scripture. And so rather than participating in the body of Christ, they basically are going to try to do Christianity alone. That can divide the church too. Paul actually uses the term dividing Christ. And so there, there's four examples right there. Four examples that we saw back in Corinth I think are fair to say that we can struggle with those too. And the, what, what's hard about this is that every one of these has the potential to be a good thing, right? Is following Jesus bad? Well, no. Is like, you know, being passionate about tradition bad? Well, no. Is good teaching bad? No. 
Is the, does theology matter? Yes. I mean, all of this stuff matters. But the potential to make something that matters the ultimate thing that matters is the issue at stake here. And this gets us to our second point for the day. What unites us? Take a look at verse 10, if you would. Paul writes, I I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Okay, so Paul is saying here, I want you all to agree. I mean, that seems kind of hard, doesn't it? Can we be honest? I mean, that seems hard with the people in this room. That probably seems hard with the people in your family. I mean, how, how is it possible if the vision of Revelation 5 is true, every tribe, tongue, nation, all gathered around the throne of Jesus together, and Paul saying, we, sh- we should all agree. We should all agree that the organ is the God-ordained instrument that needs to be played in every worship service from here till Jesus returns. We all need to agree that, you know, uh, a coat's necessary, especially to serve, you know, take up the offering. Uh, or what, we, we, we need to agree on everything. I don't think that's what Paul's after. I don't think so. I don't think he's looking for uniformity on, on everything. Now, we can try to do that, but I don't think it really works very well. I mean, a lot of the... Let's, let's talk about ourselves, okay? We're, we're not doing this just to talk about the church broadly. The point of this is to discuss us. What's really bringing us together here today? What, 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 what's really bringing us together here today, if we're honest, okay? And we've got all sorts of... Geography, right? Time, place, where we find ourselves 21st century Americans living here now. Why, what has happened here that really is the source of our unity? Is it that we like the same worship style? Is it that, you know, it used to be like we had those great mini, mini quiches, you know? Those were great, weren't they? We all like mini quiches, okay? That's what, that is what brings us together as a people, um, we like dressing the same, we like ha- having the same theological convictions, whatever. And so a lot of churches, I mean, the, the basis for what brings them together, I joke about the mini quiches, but I mean, there's, there's a certain sort of list of things that we all agree on, and that's the reason that we all do church together. We all vote Republican. This is why we're going to go to this church, Okay. We're all of a particular race or culture or, or, you know, all those sorts of things. Which, again, we can't, like, pretend those things don't exist, right? But it's an important question for us to ask, what is really, if we're being honest, the basis for our connection together, okay? And Paul's point here is that the basis of what should really bring us together is the gospel. The good news that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And while there may be all sorts of things 
that, that, that can divide us. Good things that have the potential to divide us. Don't hear me just glossing over all the tough stuff that the church has to wrestle with. I'm not doing that. But it's a fair question for us to ask, what is really bringing us together? What's really bringing us together at the end of the day? And my hope and my prayer, as I think Paul is saying here, is that Jesus is. Not some like least common denominator Jesus. We acknowledge that some guy named Jesus existed 2,000 years ago. But that we trust in him, that we hope in him, that we believe his gospel, and that we are clinging to him. That is what is to unite us. And so what Paul is going to do here is going to talk about two things. And with this, I'm going to wrap up. He's going to talk about both in this passage, as he talks about unity, he uses two illustrations, two gospel illustrations. One, the cross, and the other, baptism. Take a look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. He did not send me to baptism. Now, uh, to, to baptize. Now, of course, I mean, is Paul saying baptism's not a not a good thing? Well, of course, baptism's a good thing. I mean, that that matters. But what is the point of baptism? What we believe about baptism is that baptism is not simply a, a thing that, that you do for your own personal, you know, edification, whatever. When you're baptized, you are baptized into the body. You are, ba- you are incorporated. Baptism is a sign of initiation into a body. It is a unifying, you are part of something. And then he talks about the cross. And what is the cross but an agent of reconciliation? It's an agent. Okay, you've got, we had did confirmation with our, our students all week. So, I mean, you've got God on one side and man on the other and the cross in the middle and bridging the gap. And, uh, you know, but you've got two parties. I mean, Romans 5 tells us that we were enemies of God and that God reconciled us. Second Corinthians 5 is big on this as well, that, that we reconciled, we were reconciled to God through the shed blood of Jesus, who ends the hostility that we have with our maker and also reconciles us to our neighbor. The reason that this is so offensive to Paul, this, all this division It's because what it's communicating is that your baptism, your incorporation into this body that's founded on reconciliation is not actually having that effect. It's not accomplishing that, at least in practice. The good news, however, is that, as we talked about last week, he's going to call them back to the objective fact You are a unified body. You are the body of Christ who have been drawn by the power of God into it. And therefore, you are united. So be united. Look again to the finished work of Jesus as the basis for you being united as a body. It's the same message for us here today. I asked the question earlier, what is... What is really bringing us together?
The fourth things we mentioned earlier have the potential. Again, those things matter. They're good things. But if those things begin to take a more prominent place in our thinking than it should, we're going to separate ourselves off and divide ourselves off. and It's, it's not good. This church is in the midst of uh, transition. And I'm, I'm very encouraged about what God is doing in our midst right now. I mean, summer's over and, you know, everybody's kind of, you know, it seems like there's some excitement here, some vitality. It's been a sweet, sweet place for us. And um, I'm excited to see what God's going to do over the next year, even as we're in the midst of transition, right? And we're not just putting things on pause until new guy gets here. Um, but we have to acknowledge and, and be aware that there's the potential for division. Think about what, what we want GCC, GCC to look like in the future. My prayer for GCC during the transition and even beyond, my prayer for myself, is that we would be about Jesus, not about all the other stuff that can split up God's people. That we're Jesus plus that. That we are Jesus' people. We're going to lead with that. We're going to be about that. That is our heart's desire, to follow him, to be unified in him, despite all of our differences, which we have, and be able to love and serve one another as a unified body. To that end, let me pray for us. Precious God, we we give you thanks that you have brought us together. Uh, You do not save us simply as individual Christians, but you have brought us together to be part of your body um, where we can love and encourage and serve one another. And yet we acknowledge our temptation to make it about all sorts of other things. Would you keep us focused on your gospel, on the good news that you have reconciled us to yourself? Draw us back to that again and again and again and again. Uh, as we seek to do life together, as we seek to take care of one another with all our preferences, all of our differences, uh, all of our various passions and gifts, center us, focus us, ground us in the good news of your love for us. In Jesus we pray. Amen.